May your presence fill this place and our hearts this morning. In your name we pray, amen. We invite you to take your seats at this time. And we're going to invite Joey up for this morning's scripture reading. Okay. <laughs> Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this, this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 uh, were added to their number that day. Or the Lord. It's good to be back uh, with you again. Uh, if you don't uh, or haven't been around since I've been here, uh, some people were accusing me of the shortest interim pastorate in history uh, because I have been gone the last two Sundays. But my name is Paul Peterson. I am the interim pastor here and started on December 1st. Um, last weekend, I was with Joseph uh, Scheid and a wonderful group of guys with a long tradition of the men's retreat in this congregation. And it was great to get out into the snow but more importantly, to be with a group of guys that really understand how to, what I called, uh, jump into the deep end of the pool in terms of conversation and sharing through the weekend. It was really um, helpful to me. They say that if you attend a church retreat, it equals about three years of Sunday attendance in terms of the relationships that are built just because of the ability you have to go deeper. Uh, and in this case, uh, again, thank you, Joseph, for all your good work on that. Well, we're continuing our series in uh, what we're calling, uh, I'm calling the fundamentals, but really it's called Covenant Affirmations. There's six of these, and these are the things that bind covenant churches together. Evangelical covenant doesn't have a lot of bylaws and written things that uh, bind us together, but really they are broader principles that are found in Scripture. And so we're actually on the fifth one. We have covered the centrality of the Word of God. We've covered the necessity of new birth. Uh, Julie covered the whole mission of the church. And last week, Elise covered the fellowship of believers. What is this thing that we call the church? The fifth one that we're looking at today is affirming a conscious dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And I've told you uh, that I transferred my ordination into the Evangelical Covenant 20 years ago. And this particular affirmation, as I read some of the history of it in our denomination, I was impressed with the breadth of it. Because when we talk about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, there are a lot of places we could go. And yet, this 
the, the words that are used here, the intent behind this phrase, I think is very important. Because it alludes to the fact that the Holy Spirit is not just something we think about. I love to say this to my congregations through the years. The Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is not a math problem to be solved. In our Western thinking, that's usually where we jump to. How can three be one and one be three? And what are illustrations of this? And we get into this very Western mindset of a math problem. When that is not the biblical prerogative. What the scriptures say is enter into life in the triune God. And so when we speak about the Holy Spirit, this conscious dependence is really all about that. And this affirmation really flows out of the second one the necessity for new birth. When I spoke to you on that affirmation, I used scriptures that speak about the fact that we are not spiritually neutral. We are spiritually dead unless we have been made alive in Christ. And the biblical words are death and corpse and very morbid pictures to help us understand that without Jesus, we are not neutral, we are actually dead. But on the positive side, the phrase that Jesus used with Nicodemus, born again, speaks of this new life in the spirit. Because this defines really what God has created us to be as human beings. At our core, we are not essentially psychological beings. We are not essentially social beings, and we're not even physical beings, even though our bodies cry out for exercise and food and all the desires that our bodies have. That is not the core. The core of how God has made us is to be filled with the very spirit that God himself embodies. This is beyond our ability to understand this. This is crazy to think that God, who his spirit, actually created frail human vessels to inhabit by his spirit. And I mentioned in that same affirmation on new birth, only God can raise the dead. Only God can give us life in the Holy Spirit. Only God can create this new person filled with his Holy Spirit. Now I want to jump to the end of this morning and let you know where we're going to end up. When the plane is landed, this is where we're heading. Because I want you to pray about this this morning. As a pastor, I've learned that I can only encourage people to go deeper in their faith. I have no authority as a spiritual leader other than what people offer to me, what you offer to any other spiritual leader. But what I can do is encourage people to respond. And this morning, I'll give you my question. What would it mean for you to take risk in giving greater freedom to the Holy Spirit in your life? What would it mean for you to take a greater risk in giving greater freedom to the Holy Spirit in your own life? Nobody can answer that except yourself. 
I can't force that on you. No one can. But that's the beauty of our faith, is that invitation is constantly being offered to us by the Holy Spirit. And so I trust already that the Holy Spirit is at work in those who are willing this morning. Would you join me in prayer? These things are too wonderful to, uh, for us to understand. It is only by your Holy Spirit. We have invited you here through prayer and song. You are in us. You are in this place, this temple of the Holy Spirit. And so have your way, we pray. Amen. Well, the passage that we had this morning is taken from Acts chapter 2. And if you're not familiar with this passage, this is what theologians call the birth of the Christian church. Jesus has ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 2, the disciples and other followers of Christ are in the upper room and there is this wacky phenomena where it says that there was the sound of a wind, not an actual wind, but the sound of a wind, and there were actually what was called tongues of fire that landed on their heads. Bizarre imagery. But the important thing is not the imagery. The important thing is this was the coming of the Spirit to fill the church of Jesus Christ. And as the result of that, the disciples pour out into the streets in Jerusalem during this old Jewish festival called Pentecost because it was a harvest festival that went back into Old Testament times. And on this festival, Jerusalem is filled with people from all over the world. And all of a sudden, this group of disciples that had been hiding because of their fear of the authorities after Jesus' death, they are now bold. They are now filled with the Spirit, and they're moving out into the street. And Peter, the Apostle Peter, the last one I would have thought God would have said, you get to preach the first sermon, an uneducated fisherman, filled with the Spirit, launches into the entire chapter of which we are at the tail end of his sermon. This is his summary to the crowds. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He's talking to the Jews because they were the ones that committed Jesus to death. When the crowd heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Man, the Spirit is at work and people are ready to respond. Next. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This is a whole new concept, that the response to God, who now Peter links to Jesus, which in itself was heretical to the Jew, he's linking those together and he's saying a response is demanded. This isn't just something nice to think about. You asked me what to do, here's the deal. Turn from your sin, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and you'll be forgiven. And then immediately links it to this gift of the Holy Spirit that they had received. The promise is for you and your children, all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God 
will call. And then the final miracle, with many other words, he warned them. He pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And as many of you who know your scriptures know, this was an amazing altar call. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Again, this is being written by Luke, the historian, the physician. 3,000 people. This is miraculous. This is something that's beyond some kind of intellectual debate where Peter is saying, all right, we've got a lot of worldviews represented here. Uh, I'm going to bring you a new one here because God uh, is actually Jesus, and now there's this Holy Spirit, and let's do the math. There's three of them, three or one, one and three. Anyway, that's not the tact that Peter says. He is swept up in seeing the miracles now that Jesus used to perform. These are the kind of things that they saw Jesus do, and now, not through some spiritual hocus-pocus or some magic show, but the same kind of miracle has happened simply because Peter was obedient to tell the truth about this triune God. Now, at this point, I'm, if I haven't already freaked you out, um, I'm going all King James Version on you, okay? Uh, what I mean by that is some of, some of you are too young to even have ever read the King James Version of the Bible, the authorized version that is written in King James language because it goes back to the 1600s in England when King James authorized a group of scholars to translate it into English, and so they did it in the dialect of their day, what we call Old English. So put up verse 38 in King James. And let's see what it sounded like back then. Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And here's where it really goes off the rails. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Sounding like a TV preacher now. Ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And there it is in Old English script and font. The term, giving up the ghost, is out of the King James Bible. And again, it's not really a phrase we use much anymore, so that's why I'm taking you back to this. I grew up in an era in the 1950s where the King James Version was still around. And I had a copy of my own, and this was the most bizarre thing to read old, what is this, Shakespeare? What are we doing here? And yet, some of the phrases, especially the Psalms, are really beautiful in the old King James, but a lot of it's very confusing and not accessible to us today. But as a kid, I thought the idea of a ghost was pretty cool. You know, ghosts weren't as morbid back then. You know, now we got all these scary movies and things that I would not suggest you tune into. But back then, you know, we had Casper the Friendly Ghost, right? Come on, who's with me? Casper the Friendly, come on. Yeah, yeah, ghosts weren't to be feared. They were friendly. They were buddies. And so to me and my cousins, we would talk about the Holy Ghost. It's like, how cool is that? The Holy Ghost is around. And my grandma and grandpa, when, when grandpa retired, he was a postal carrier downtown Seattle his whole career. And when they retired, they were kind of managers of different apartments. 
And there's an apartment building that is still there across from the Woodland Park Zoo. And my grandparents were the caretakers of that place in the late 50s. And it was awesome because we would go over there, get to see grandma and grandpa, and then we'd get to go to the zoo, and then we'd come back, and we get to play around in this old, what we thought was kind of a scary apartment building. You know why? Because it had old people. <laughs> yeah, people the same age as me right now. We were, we were just really freaked out by these folks. And so we would sneak around, and, and I come from a large family, and so I had like, you know, 15 cousins, and we're all running through this apartment building. And we found this closet. And so because we were all King James kids, we determined that the Holy Ghost was in the closet. Yeah. And we were trying to figure out who had the nerve to go and explore the closet to see if the Holy Ghost really existed in that closet. I'm going to use Holy Ghost through the remainder of the message today. Because too often, I think, when we, even in our Christianese, those of us who are used to these kind of Christian things, we don't really get the full impact of what the Holy Ghost is all about. Go back to verse 32 in the middle of Peter's sermon. This is his wrap-up point, really, in the middle of his sermon. And again, I'm going old King James on you. Peter said, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. And some of you are going, huh? Think Shakespeare. The main point is he is tying the triune persons of the Trinity in one place. He's not defining the Trinity. He's speaking of the Trinity experientially. God raised up Jesus. The Father has sent the promise, and it is this Holy Ghost. Because all three persons of the Trinity are eternally present. They were all present at creation, and yet we tend to look at God as the creator and the sustainer of the world. Jesus Christ as the Savior of humanity is what we focus upon, rightly so, but then he is exalted to the right hand of God the Father, which the right hand simply means it's a place of authority. And so God and Jesus are in their rightful place of authority, and now Peter has experienced along with these other apostles this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this Holy Ghost. But it's in a new and a different way because this is the birth of the Christian church. I mentioned a few uh, sermons back, one of the great apologetics, I believe, for the authenticity of this event is there was no Christian church up to this point. And any historian has to deal with the fact that something happened in around 30 AD in Jerusalem that birthed a movement that continues until today. Now, this was mind-blowing to the apostles because they, they grew up believing in one God, Yahweh. That was it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. 
They did not have any concept of a triune God, nor the concept of experiencing a triune God. They needed new lenses to see what was happening to them. Uh, nine years ago, when I was uh, in my mid-50s, I was starting to have a little bit of difficulty reading. So I went to ophthalmologist and I said, give me the test, tell me what's going on. And give me some glasses, help me out. And he did the test on my eyes and he said, Paul, you got the eyes of an 80-year-old man. I go, what? He goes, yeah, you got cataracts. He says, I could give you glasses right now, but they would be no help to you whatsoever because of this, the cataracts in both eyes. I had noticed that light was starting to bother me. Even in the gray days of winter in the Northwest, I'm walking around with sunglasses on because my eyes were sensitive. Anybody have cataract surgery in here? Yeah, you know that feeling. And so here I was in my mid-50s, and he's saying, let's go after it. Let's take care of both of those cataracts. Okay. Uh, and that's a whole other story, the operation itself. But over the course of three weeks, both cataracts were removed. And then he said, now I can really test your eyes and see if you need glasses. And the good news was I didn't and I just use the little cheaters, right? And that's been true over the last nine years. But my point is this, that I was not seeing clearly. The disciples weren't seeing clearly about the nature of God, and they got cataracts removed, and they had the ability now to see with clear vision. The apostles now saw the triune God through three new lenses. Put up the graphic if you would. This is a great summary statement that I think captures what they now could see. At Bethlehem, he became God with us. At Calvary, he became God for us. And at Pentecost, he became God in us. That's the experiential nature of the triune God. And now the disciples understood that. They weren't looking back with nostalgia. Wasn't it great when Jesus was here? Remember the time we walked along the seashore and he cooked breakfast? They told those stories, but it wasn't out of nostalgia. They had now experienced Pentecost, God in us. The Holy Ghost was living in them. Gordon Fee, one of my professors at Regent and really an expert in the Pauline understanding of the Holy Ghost, he said the early Christians didn't ask each other, are you born again or are you saved? Because of their experience at Pentecost, they would ask each other, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Because those terms were synonymous. To be a follower of Jesus, to be one who was born again, to be one who was saved, was to be filled with the Spirit. And so they just jumped to the natural operational piece of the question, which is, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? And that's my question for us today. Are we filled with the Holy Ghost? Let's jump to one of Paul's letters in 1 Thessalonians. 
Again, going King James on you. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Tagline on that is, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Now Paul is speaking about groups of believers, this church in uh, Thessaloniki, which is in Greece, modern-day Greece, and they are people of the Holy Ghost because they've experienced this. Again, they're not just some kind of philosophical society that gets together and talks about cool things regarding Judaism and this Jesus person. They are people of the Holy Ghost. This is one of the biggest challenges for us as humans because everything in our body screams for us to stay tied to the physical world that we can touch. We're trapped in time and space. We don't think generally beyond that. And so every day, everything is just what's in front of us and our body dictates where we're heading, our emotions, our psychology, our social interactions, etc. And it's also familiar to us. This is all we know apart from Christ. We're led to believe that we can control our destiny through science and psychology and sociology and all the good things that we can study in the disciplines of the world that we observe in our human reasoning. The Holy Ghost, on the other hand, is unfamiliar, is something we can't control, we can't put it in a bottle, we can't define it and make it our own. That's why this morning our call to worship was from John, the same words that he said to Nicodemus. The wind blows wherever it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I love the analogy that Jesus gave to Nicodemus because we understand that. That's a physical reality. When the wind blows, we can see its effects. Trees move back and forth, plants bend, we feel the wind on our face, yet no one can capture the wind. We can't bottle the wind. We can't fully restrain the impact of it, even though we know when storms are coming through the winter and gonna hit us in the Northwest. When the wind blows, it changes everything that it touches. And so it is with this Holy Ghost. It is the Holy Ghost that can clear our mind and soften our hearts to even receive Jesus. It is the Holy Ghost that renews our dead souls and gives birth to this new spirit. It is the Holy Ghost that takes up residence in our frail spirit. We should fall on our knees at the concept and the truth of what the scriptures tell us about God dwelling in us. And we should also thank him for constantly being in a place of renewing us and not only renewing us as individuals, 
But when we gather together as we are today, and I'll include the second service folks, Evergreen Covenant has the potential to constantly be renewed by the Holy Ghost, and that's been its history. When a church starts to veer to the right or to the left, away from the things of God, it is the Holy Ghost that wakes up people in the church and wakes up leadership and prepares us for what's next. One of the great phrases out of the Old Testament to show us that this Holy Ghost didn't just show up in the New Testament, the prophets often spoke of the Spirit. And here, Zechariah says, the word of the Lord came to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but my, by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Not by might. In the Psalms, it says, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, some trust in armies. The things that physically we can see and put our hope and trust in. And the psalmist says, but I will trust in the Lord my God. That's what the prophet is getting at. And God raised up the prophets whenever Israel was putting its trust in its kings, in its armies, in its might, in its wisdom. And I would say today, when we put our trust in science and technology and political leaders, we are guilty of the same thing. As followers of Jesus, when we forget that we are people of the Holy Ghost. And that is the thing that then we can use our technology and our science and our political leaders can lead us forward. But it starts with the Holy Ghost. Well, I'm sure this sermon is causing all kinds of questions. I have no agenda other than to invite us deeper into the life of the Holy Spirit. I know as a new interim pastor, socially we all try to figure out what are the social clues that will tell us what box we can put a particular person in, and you're still trying to figure me out, right? And I'm not trying to freak you out today. I love being here, I love being an interim with you and helping our leadership in this time. But I wanna encourage you not to try and label myself or anything else regarding the spirit by any, if you're, if you're in, in the church community, don't label it Pentecostal. Don't label it reformed. Don't label it charismatic. Don't label it dispensational. If you know even what those theological categories are, Life in the Spirit that I love to invite people into is not a specific doctrine. And in fact, one of the reasons I love the covenant is we don't land in any particular spot. We have people in leadership throughout our movement who have all differing boxes in terms of the Holy Spirit. But what we all agree upon is we need to have conscious dependence upon this Spirit. It's very pragmatic. I'm in on that. And so that's my encouragement to us today. The mentors that I have had through my life have helped me a lot because there's great fear. Do I want to open my life up to something that may make me weird or weirder than I am? There's often a lot of uncertainty and concern about the spirit because of the excesses and the abuses that we see even in our own culture regarding this, fringe groups, 
crazy stuff on TV. That is not what I'm talking about. My mentors helped me by saying, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. Doesn't that make sense? God has created each of you with a personality, with gifts and abilities and the way you see the world. Why would he wipe that clean like cleaning a hard drive and disregard all that he has invested to make you who you are? So when I say the Holy Spirit is a gentleman, he comes in and he takes all of the stuff that has, God has made you and makes it filled with the Holy Ghost and suitable for the purposes of the kingdom. So do not fear. Our desire is to be in step with the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to invite the band to come forward right now as we respond in prayer, as I told you earlier. I told you where we were going to land the plane, and now we're landing it. The band is going to help us think through a response, and I want to give space. When I think about the work of the Spirit in my life, this is the last topic I want to just preach a sermon on and button it up and go, done. <laughs> because it invites us to give space to the work of the Spirit. For some of you, the Spirit may speak to you this morning. For some of you, some of the best times my connection with the Spirit has been on walks and wanderings around in the Northwest and just offering my own individual self to the Lord in prayer. So I invite you to bow your heads with me. And again, I would invite you to think about this. Is there, or excuse me, what is, what would it mean for you to take a risk in your openness to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life this morning or this afternoon. As I said, I can't define what that means for you. That's only your work before the Lord. But I can encourage you to think about things. Could it be the restoration of a relationship? Could it be saying I'm sorry to someone today? Could it be Realizing where you fell out of alignment with what God intended for you. Or maybe it's something much bigger. Maybe it's something you've held on to and not wanted to release to God for whatever reason, and you've just held that from him. And the Holy Spirit is saying for you, the risk would be to give that up. I just want us in this moment of quiet to give you a time of reflection and then we're going to conclude. Holy Spirit, we recognize your work in us. We recognize your work among us this morning. Thank you for being as close as our breath. Thank you for your presence. We invite you to continue to do your good work. Amen.